Please pray with me. God of grace, let the words that are spoken and the words that are heard be blessed by you, the living word. Amen. Our reading from the book of Acts this morning says that we receive power through Jesus Christ who was crucified. Our reading from the first letter of John speaks of God's love, and we like that. It also talks about laying down our lives for one another, and I suspect we don't like that so much. We Christians talk a lot about love as a part of discipleship. We talk a lot less about sacrifice. Even though we pray each month in our communion liturgy for God to make us a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's sacrifice for us. Sometimes those of us on more of a progressive or liberal end of the spectrum of Christianity don't like to talk about Christ laying down his life for us as the passage from 1 John does. There are good reasons for that. On the other hand, the crucifixion of Jesus is central to the justification of nonviolence as a Christian practice and way of life. Jesus chose nonviolence. This is how many of us make meaning of the pervasive biblical and theological theme that Christ laid down his life for us. Many of us who call ourselves Christian have a deep conviction about this. We celebrate the use of Christian nonviolence in significant social movements, such as the American Civil Rights Movement. And this week, there have been calls for nonviolence in Baltimore. Unfortunately, those calls have not always been pointed in the appropriate direction. They've been aimed mostly toward rioters who come from largely disenfranchised and oppressed communities without at the same time also calling from nonviolence from police or others in power. As writer Tanahasi Coates puts it in an article in The Atlantic this week, when nonviolence is preached as an attempt to evade the repercussions of police brutality, it betrays itself. Prominent Christian writer Brian McLaren referred this week to the writings of Brazilian archbishop and theologian Dom Helder Camara. Camara wrote of what he called the spiral of violence. In the archbishop's understanding, social injustice is the primary violence, often tolerated so long that it seems normal to most people. Rebellion is the secondary violence, when people respond to the primary violence of injustice with their own counterviolence. Repressive violence comes third, when the powers that be squash the rebellion, strengthening their power to continue the primary violence of social injustice. The cycle can be broken at any point, but to do so takes courage, love, faith, nonviolence, and great persistence. To break the cycle, we have to see it and reject it and believe in a better spiral of justice, joy, and peace. That's from the Archbishop. 
And McLaren also writes, it is easy to condemn desperate people who do wrong and destructive things, as a small number of people have been doing in Baltimore in recent days. It's a lot harder to take the big planks out of the eyes of the rest of us. Larger numbers who also do wrong and destructive things, not by burning cars and buildings or throwing bricks, but by standing idly by while our neighbors suffer from the long-term effects of unemployment, white supremacy, systemic racism, and structural injustice. Pay attention to the rage and hopelessness of the rioters, and pay attention also to the decency and dignity of the many who are responding in mature, generous, and healing ways, and then decide to add your voice and energy to the latter. What's going on in Baltimore is complicated, and I'm not a journalist or a social scientist, but here are a few things I think are relevant from what I've been reading. There is violence coming from multiple parties, from rioters and from police. The injustice and violence perpetrated by police in Baltimore is long-standing, and this violence and injustice has been well-documented long before there was any Justice Department report on Ferguson and long before Freddie Gray's death. There are people doing amazing work for communities in Baltimore and doing work that also began long before this current spotlight was on Baltimore. There are people and organizations working to increase opportunity in Baltimore communities and working to build bridges between police and those who have been most suspicious of police. These stories are not as sensational as the most prominent headlines we've been seeing, but they are significant and substantive. And you can find these stories if you take the time to look beyond just the headlines. So what do we make of a faith focused on a savior who gave his life through nonviolence in the face of violence perpetrated against him? What do we make of scriptures that call us to make sacrifices as a practice of Christian love? One of my closest friends and colleagues is doing a sermon series right now on uh, Christian martyrs, telling the stories of Christian martyrs. The stories of martyrs remind us that, at least for them, being a follower of Jesus means accepting the possibility that you would die for living according to God's ways or God's will. The biblical story of God portrays a God who could wipe out every living creature if God wanted to do that. The biblical story of God portrays a God powerful enough to both create and destroy on a dramatic scale. We see all of this most obviously in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and all of this is the foundation, is the set of assumptions that frames the Christian story as it emerges in the New Testament. And the Christian story proclaims that it is exactly this all-powerful God who chooses a path of humility and of powerlessness. It is this all-powerful God who enters into the human condition 
who chooses nonviolence and who is crucified as if helpless. This is the context in which we find this morning's scripture readings, telling us that we know God's love because Christ laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for one another. I don't know how to preach about this stuff. I have a very comfortable life. I would prefer to keep it that way. Part of the comfort and security of my life is feeling an enormous confidence that if or when I ever need to call the police, that authority and strength, including those guns, will be used on my behalf, used to protect me. It's difficult for me to even imagine what it would be like if I were unable to believe that, if in fact it were reasonable and realistic to believe that the guns I hope to have protect me could just as easily be turned against me. And this is the well-documented reality that too many black and brown Americans live with, a reality that has been well-documented in Baltimore and in other places. I haven't known very many police officers well enough to truly hear their stories, their hopes and convictions, and their sense of their work. But there is one who stands out in my mind, one who was part of a different congregation I served, and I knew him well. He had three top goals for his work in law enforcement, and I only remember two of them, but one was to never get shot. And another was to never shoot anybody. Now, maybe I'm naive, but I, it never occurred to me that that would be a significant goal for a law enforcement officer, the goal to never shoot anybody. And he wasn't some idealistic kid. At that time, he was a 15-year law enforcement veteran who had mostly been assigned to very rough neighborhoods. But he had a sense of clarity and confidence that he had a whole range of tools available to him that he could use before it ever came to the point of firing his weapon. And he had a deep commitment to using those tools. He also understood his work very earnestly as being a role of serving his community in order to make the community a better place for everyone. He understood that this particular role and type of service put him at risk, that he could come under harm's way in order to care for his community in the way he felt called to do. And he did feel his work was a calling. I have the utmost respect for him, and I've probably thought of him a hundred times or more in these last nine months. I also believe that if every law enforcement officer shared his orientation to his work, our world would be a better place today. And although I think his perspective is special, I don't think he's alone in that. His willingness to try any other means possible before firing his weapon is a sacrifice. It sacrifices the use of his most obvious source of strength and power. Serving your community in a way that literally puts you at risk is a sacrifice. Maybe it is even a holy and living sacrifice, as our communion liturgy says. And of course, we don't have to be in law enforcement in order to make sacrifices for our communities, for justice, for a better world. And the Christian story of a powerful God 
becoming vulnerable in order to share our lot suggests that it is exactly the people in positions of power and authority and privilege who are called upon to make sacrifices. But having said that, having said that, I don't really know how to preach about this. I have a very comfortable life, and I rarely sacrifice much of anything significant. I have felt such a sense of urgency about issues of racial justice, and I have felt so much at a loss to know what I can do. I imagine that some, maybe most of you, share my distress at not knowing what our role is or what we can do. But even when we don't know what to say or do, too much is at stake for us to avoid the conversation. We can't treat conversations about race and injustice as optional. Too much is at stake for that. Nonviolent movements of oppressed people, like the American Civil Rights Movement, like Gandhi's work in India, these are incredibly moving and powerful and are right. But God's call to sacrifice is particularly for those in power, not for the disempowered. I'm certainly not saying that it's fine for those who are disempowered, disenfranchised to turn to violence. I wouldn't approve of violence in any circumstances. But I am suggesting that we don't really have a right to call on people to disarm if we're not taking away the guns that are aimed at them. I don't have answers or guidance to offer in this sermon. What I do have is a conviction that the Christian call to be willing to make sacrifices is real and that it applies to people like me who enjoy a great deal of privilege. What I do have is a sense of urgency about issues of race and injustice in our country. What I do have is questions about how to put this conviction and this sense of urgency into practice. So let us together be a community of conviction that asks these questions together. And maybe together with our convictions and our questions, we can identify ways also to work for justice. Amen.